Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's post, big firms have different incentives. And this post is the second in a series of collaborations I'm writing with Arno Dievre, a PhD student at the London School of Economics who's working on growth and the economic returns of publicly funded R&D. To learn more about the collaboration policy here on New Things Under the Sun, you can check out newthingsunderthesun.com slash collaborations. So in our first post, Arno and I documented a puzzle. Larger firms conduct R&D at the same rate as smaller firms, despite getting fewer and more incremental innovations per R&D dollar. And the puzzle is, why wouldn't firms decelerate their research spending as the return on R&D apparently declines? Now, in this follow-up post, we look at one explanation. Firms of different sizes face different incentives when it comes to innovation. And in a later post, we're going to review another explanation, which is that large firms have different inventive and commercialization capabilities. As a quick aside, the question about what drives differences in the nature of innovation between small and large firms, that's a really big literature, and we're not going to be able to cover all of it. Uh, If you're interested in learning more, check out the newsletter that this is an audio version of, and there's some links to some other resources. Anyway, to start, let's actually revisit our claim that the return to R&D seems to fall as firms get larger. Is this actually true? So let's think of the returns to R&D as the results a firm gets out of R&D divided by the firm's R&D efforts. Typically, we measure those results by things like new patents, new products, new streams of revenue, etc. Now, it turns out some of these measures might understate innovation by large firms because larger firms are more likely to generate process rather than product innovations. Now, process innovations are concerned with better ways of delivering a service or manufacturing a product, not creating a new business line. Process innovations will not show up directly in product-based measures of innovation, though they could show up indirectly if they enable you, like a new process lets you create new kinds of products. For example, some earlier articles I've written have looked at the introduction of new consumer products or the attributes of different car models as ways to measure what we get out of R&D. And check out the newsletter for links to some of those posts. Now, while process innovations can be patented, they're probably less likely to be patented than new products are. For example, there was a 1994 survey by Cohen, Nelson, and Walsh uh, that came out in the year 2000. The sort of paper about it did. Uh, This survey asked 1,500 R&D labs in the manufacturing sector to rank five different ways of capturing the value of new inventions. Now, among the 33 different sectors to which the firms belonged, only one out of the 33 Only firms in sort of one out of the 33 thought patents were the most effective way to protect process inventions. And that's compared to seven out of 33 who thought patents were the most effective way to protect a new product invention. In contrast, 16 out of 33 of these sectors, or at least firms in these sectors, thought patents were actually the worst way of the five options to protect new process inventions. And that's compared to 10 out of 33 who think patents are the worst way to protect new product inventions. Another way to summarize the survey is just to note that only 23% of respondents reported that patents were effective at all as a means to appropriate process innovations, or at least the value of those innovations, while 35% considered them effective ways to appropriate the value of product innovations. 
So if process innovations are less likely to find their way into the catalogs of new products or the patent portfolios of firms, then they're also less likely to be picked up by conventional measures of innovation. If larger firms are disproportionately likely to engage in process innovation, well, that will make it seem as if larger firms are getting fewer results from their R&D. And we actually do have some evidence that large firms are more process innovation oriented. Liu, Sojli, and Tam, 2022, used natural language processing to try and classify patents as protecting process or product innovations. And their main approach breaks the title of patents and their claims into sort of multiple linguistic components and then looks to see if these components contain words like process, method, or use, which are all words that would indicate we're talking about a process invention, or if these components contain words like product, apparatus, or tool, and that would indicate a product. And then they also ask patent examiners and an IP management firm to classify a random sample of hundreds of patents that their algorithm has also classified. And they come away with the same answer as the examiners and the experts around 90% of the time. So using this, they show that over 1976 to 2020, U.S. firms that have more process patents and are publicly traded. Using this, they show that over 1976 to 2020, publicly traded U.S. firms that have more process patents than product patents, those are, firms tend to be larger. We also have some non-patent evidence, though it's based on pretty old surveys at this point. Exigit and Kerr, 2018, match census data on U.S. firms to this comprehensive survey of R&D activities conducted by the National Science Foundation, and that survey covered the period 1979 to 1989. And they find that there's a positive correlation, again, between firm size, which here they're going to define as the log of employment in that firm, and the share of R&D in that firm dedicated to process innovation, according to the survey. So both the patent and survey-based evidence suggest larger firms, in fact, do do more process innovation than product innovation. But we also have pretty good theoretical reasons to expect that this should be the case. As I have written elsewhere on New Things in the Sun, and there's links in the, pod, in the newsletter, when a particular kind of technology gets more profitable to invent, firms do more R&D on that kind of technology. And to the extent the profitability of different kinds of R&D differ as firms scale up, well, it wouldn't be surprising that their R&D choices would begin to diverge. For example, larger firms typically have a wider portfolio of products and they sell more products in each of their lines. And so it therefore makes sense for them to find more efficient ways to produce and deliver these products because they can spread the costs of their process innovation over more products and more product lines. You know, if you expect to sell, say, 10,000 cars, and well, then it's going to be worth $10,000 to invent a process that reduces the cost of manufacturing by $1 per car. But if you expect to sell a million cars, you'll pay a million dollars to invent that same technology that reduces the costs by a dollar a car. So this explanation has been referred to as the cost-spreading advantage of larger firms in conducting R&D. The bigger the firm, the greater the level of output over which it can apply its process R&D. Cost-spreading pushes bigger firms towards process innovation. And so one reason we might observe fewer innovations per dollar among large firms is that their size incentivizes them to focus on harder-to-observe process improvements. More speculatively, it might be that a similar dynamic could also affect our measurement of the sort of inputs to R&D, and that could further bias our measures about the R&D productivity of firms as they get bigger. 
It's long been suggested that smaller firms might underreport R&D expenditures, and that would tend to inflate their measured R&D productivity because, you know, it would seem like they're getting more even though they put less R&D into it. Now, one reason for that might be that if firms, say, can receive tax breaks for R&D expenditures, larger firms might invest more in sophisticated ways of sort of claiming these breaks, either via more careful documentation or maybe they're pushing the boundary of what can be claimed as an R&D expense. It's kind of a cousin to cost spreading here because if there's like a fixed cost of aggressively reporting your R&D spending, for example, because maybe you have to hire more tax lawyers to sort of see how much you can push the envelope, well, that cost might be more worth enduring for larger firms that have more uh, plausible R&D expenses. And there's a paper, actually, Boeing and Peters 2021, for example, that shows that has some evidence that R&D subsidies are often used for non-research purposes in China. And this isn't the only possible reason that for small firms might underreport R&D. There's a paper, Roper 1999, which suggests it could also be because it's just harder to measure R&D spending in smaller firms because maybe they don't have full-time research staff or dedicated research labs, uh, which would make it really easy to sort of sum that stuff up and report the R&D expenditure. Now, that said, while I think this all seems very plausible, I'm actually not aware of any evidence that documents this idea of biased R&D reporting. Indeed, in Boeing and Peters 2021, they actually do not find any statistically significant correlation between the size of firms and their tendency to sort of misrepresent or misreport R&D. So the cost spreading incentive pushes firms towards process innovation, which might be harder to observe, but we should still probably consider that a form of genuine innovation. But another incentive pushes them, that is bigger firms, away from product innovation. And that's called the replacement effect. Basically, if a better version of a product is invented, most people are going to buy the improved version rather than the older one, all else equal. If you're an incumbent firm that was previously selling that older version, that's a reason to be less excited about a new product. If you invent a new product, you're partially competing against yourself. If you're an entrant, though, you don't care about that. Now, since incumbents will tend to be larger firms, this dynamic might also explain differences in how firms innovate as they grow larger. This is an old argument in economics dating back to Kenneth Arrow in 1962, and it was later named the replacement effect. Incumbent firms' reluctance to do R&D in domains that could threaten their core business is closely related to what's sometimes called the innovator's dilemma, too, in the business literature, and it's a core tenet of some endogenous growth models. Now, the recent development of chatbots powered by large language models is kind of a possible illustration of this dynamic. Google seems to have underinvested in the type of AI technology powering OpenAI's ChatGPT and GPT-4 because that would have been a direct siphon of sort of the ad revenues generated by its own search engine. And as a result, Google seems to be finding itself having to make up for lost ground in this AI race, which it once dominated. But documenting the extent of the replacement effect at large is a bit tricky because you're looking for R&D that doesn't happen. Now, one way we could do this is if we came up with a bunch of good ideas for R&D projects and we just randomly gave the ideas to large firms and small firms. And then we could see which firms run with those ideas and which ones just sort of leave them alone. The trouble is it's hard enough for firms to come up with good ideas for themselves, let alone innovation researchers to come up with good ideas for them. But there are two studies that are kind of related, I think, to this thought experiment. Cunningham, Ederer, and Ma, 2021, while not about innovation and the size of firms specifically, provides, I think, some excellent documentation of replacement effect style dynamics. Their context is the pharmaceutical sector, where it's quite common for large incumbent firms to source new R&D projects from small startups. 
The sector is also one where there's high quality data available on the different research projects, which here are going to be new drug compounds, that firms are working on. Cunningham, Ederer, and Ma's main analysis focuses on comparing what happens to acquisitions where the acquired research project overlaps with something in the incumbent's existing drug portfolio as compared to when incumbents acquire research projects for drugs that don't overlap with their existing portfolio. And they find acquired drugs that overlap with the acquirer's existing portfolio are more likely to see further development just instantly shut down, abandoned, and so on. That's consistent with firms failing to invest as much in new R&D that competes with their existing product lines. Now, technically, this isn't a replacement effect because the acquiring firms didn't merely fail to invest in competitors to their own drugs. They actively went out and bought competitors, but only to kill them. The paper is actually called Killer Acquisitions. Cunningham, Ederer, and Ma show that this can make some sense, or this can make sense in some situations. Not only will a firm not want to spend R&D on a new project that competes with its own projects, but it will actually find it profitable to spend money in order to stop other firms from doing R&D on competing projects in some settings. The second study that is kind of related to this thought experiment of what if we could give different firms a bunch of ideas and see who takes them and runs and who just leaves them. The second study looks not at how firms choose to develop or abandon research projects, but rather how they choose to use identical, or at least at least identical on paper, research staff. So using a spectacular data set of patents that are matched to their inventors' earnings, Exeget and Goldschlag 2023 studies the evolution of an inventor's invent- innovative output, that is patent applications here, around the time when the inventors move from a small young firm to a large incumbent one. And they also study how an inventor's income changes around that switch, thanks to this administrative data they have access to. Now their definition of a young firm is one that has been in business for five years or less, and their definition of an incumbent firm is one that is more than 21 years old and has more than 1,000 employees. So you know these definitions are kind of conflating firm age and size, but uh, we think that these results are still relevant. Now, to evaluate the causal impact of a hire by an incumbent on an inventor's inventions and earnings, they match inventors who move to incumbents to inventors who move to young firms. These sort of statistical twins are of similar age, income, patenting history, and industrial sector, all measured before this new hiring event, so that the only observable difference between them is the type of firm they go to, a young firm or an old firm. Now, of course, there could also be these unobservable things that we don't have access to, like their risk appetite or something. And to the extent that you believe that those things are going to matter a lot, you're going to want to discount the results that I'm about uh, about to tell you. Anyway, while these pairs of inventors have similar innovative output prior to their job changes, Exeget and Goldschlag show that the average inventor hired by an incumbent starts to innovate less, about 6% less, compared to their matched peer who goes to a young firm. But matching the stylized fact that larger firms get less output per R&D dollar, Exeget and Goldschlag find inventors moving to large firms actually experience a large increase in their earnings. They get a 13% increase in their earnings compared to their matched peer who goes to a younger firm. And there's a figure that, as usual, you can't see in the audio version that just kind of shows Uh, For the four years before this kind of hiring event where these two people sort of part ways, 
they're indistinguishable in terms of their patent applications and their earnings. And then as soon as this hiring event happens where they go to different types of firms, there's this immediate uh, divergence in earnings and sort of a divergence in the number of patent applications that grows over time. One interpretation of this is that two equally productive inventors, one working for a small and young firm, the other working for a large and incumbent firm, are going to be told to work on problems that are different. The inventor in the large firm might be asked to work on innovations that are less likely to threaten the firm's existing product lines, of which there might be many, and therefore less likely to lead to patents, let alone high-impact patents. Note also that this paper is consistent with the puzzle we sort of noted at the outset. Large firms spend as much on R&D as small firms, but their innovative output per R&D effort seems to be lower, at least when innovative output is measured by patents. Exigit and Goldschlag suggest that's because firms are paying their inventors you know, pretty handsomely, but asking them to work on projects that are less likely to lead to new patents and new products. So to summarize, we've seen we have theoretical reasons to expect larger firms to be more attracted to process innovation, as well as some empirical evidence that this is actually the case. And we also have reasons to think that process innovations might be harder for us as researchers to see. We've also got some theoretical and empirical evidence that larger firms might be less excited about certain kinds of product innovation. And those differences can help explain why bigger firms maybe keep up the R&D pace, even as they appear to be worse at actually sort of doing R&D. Maybe they aren't actually worse at R&D. It's just that they do less innovation we can see and more innovation that we can't. And maybe that is the case. Maybe that's the whole story. But we'll see that that's not actually the only story that sort of the existing research has explored. In a future post, we're going to look at some evidence that the relative infrequency of high-impact innovations at larger firms is not only just about incentives and rational choices, but also about the different inventive and commercialization capabilities of larger firms. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end-of-the-episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.